I think we all have a responsibility, you know, to make the world a better place in our own ways. People do that, some by working in business, some by being teachers, some by being nurses, some by being good parents. To me, given what's going on now, the enormous threats which have become so large to the ability of future generations and even our own generation to live happily and healthy and thrive in this world are in so much peril that I feel a responsibility. And over the last year, I've been blessed with the birth of a granddaughter, Sydney Grace, and a grandson, Henry Walter. I just feel it even more now than I ever have that since the problems are solvable, we've got a responsibility to solve them and not leave this world heading on its current path to catastrophe. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. I met today's guest, Fred Krupp, who's the head of the Environmental Defense Fund, through past guest, Bob Langert, who's McDonald's former head of corporate social responsibility. I believe they're friends from having worked together for a long, long time. These days in the environment, I find that the loudest voices come from protesters because they design their actions for attention. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're effective. It doesn't mean that they're not, but reading word for word what I emailed to a friend about one such group, quote, they seemed heavy on demands. I hope that style works for them. It felt domineering to me. I consider protest important. At the same time, I consider it important to offer help to people and organizations we'd like to change, but don't know how to on their own, which is my strategy. One of my definitions of leadership is to help people do what they want, but don't know how, end quote. EDF isn't designed for maximum attention, but for helping others. In particular, at least as I understand, those with large potential for change, which is close to my strategy. To give you an idea of why I see this strategy as an important part of the ecosystem is that without this role, I think people who and organizations that could change will fear and protect themselves. For example, I've been trying to meet with Exxon, but the Exxon New campaign is leading them to circle the wagons and protect themselves. Maybe the Exxon New campaign is doing everything for the best, I don't know, but I see the need to offer a hand too, to help them come up with strategies they couldn't have on their own. EDF does a lot more than this. For example, they're launching a satellite to detect emissions. And having helped launch a satellite as part of my PhD myself, I love the audacity and the effectiveness. In this conversation, I focused on the leadership part, but we cover more, Fred and I, including his personal background in EDFs. Here's Fred Krupp. Okay, so welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Fred Krupp in EDFs offices. Fred, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for coming by. Glad to be here. And, you know, I, I can't help but remark, I'm really curious, this organization has been here, I read, 52 years. You've been here 35 years. So long time. 
And this is a beautiful office on Park Avenue South. And there's plants growing on the walls in the lobby. And I wonder what the office looked like when you first got here, because I'm kind of curious the changes, just the physical space and certainly the number of people has changed. Actually, let me ask first, EDF is one of the big ones. So I I think most people have heard of it, but maybe could you say a few words about what is EDF and how does it differentiate from others? Yeah, well, the Environmental Defense Fund is uh, an environmental group that prides itself on solving some of the biggest problems uh, out there. And we do that using, you know, a, a constructive approach, science, economics, law, an interest in uh, in people and, and things that work for nature and people, you know, because that's how we're going to turn around the crisis we're in is by finding solutions to people's needs that allow people and nature to thrive together. And has it always been this? Because I feel like at the beginning, it was your background. You came from law, environmental law, if I, if I know, if I got it right. You do. And I, I feel like there's a big transition that happened over, quickly over time. I'm not sure. Well, actually, uh, the initial uh, motto of EDF, informal motto, was sue the bastards. <laughs> and, uh, and there were a bunch to sue for sure. There still are a, a, a good many, maybe more so lately than usual. But the darn. <laughs> but EDF was started in 1967 over the effort to ban DDT, which was killing the bald eagle and the osprey. Uh, back in 1966, when the founders of EDF looked at nests out on Long Island, a hundred osprey nests normally would give rise to 165, 167 young chicks. Mm-hmm. And uh, that summer, they gave rise to um, seven mm-hmm. instead of 167. So reproduction was almost still the moms when they sat on these eggs. The eggs had become so thin because of DDT and the, the residue DDE that the amniotic fluid would just evaporate through mm-hmm. the thin eggshells. And the mom would sit on her child's eggs, child inside the egg, and it would just crack. And that that was the end of that being. and. EDF, uh, the scientists were determined to do something about it. They sued the... Um, Bastards. <laughs> they, they sued the Suffolk Mosquito Control Commission, uh, which might have qualified for that term, and they won an injunction. Mm-hmm. And they were impressed with combining science with the power of law. And it, uh, sorry to interrupt, but at that time, DDT was viewed as like this miracle thing, curing malaria, or not curing malaria, but I mean, I think now we look at DDT as like a big problem. Yeah, well, actually, um, starting in 1961 in... Post-Carlson? Rachel Carson had her book serialized in The New Yorker, and I think it was The New Yorker, and then the book was published in 1962. So she was sounding the alarm based on her her own science and intuition, but actually the founders of EDF were the first ones who documented it in a pretty rigorous way. And there was a growing concern... But now that was coupled with the evidence. And so that was before you. Was, that was t- decades before you. I was in junior high school uh, <laughs> uh, back then. Yeah. And uh, I came, the organization was 17 years old. And even when I arrived, uh, not something I take credit for, Tom Graff uh, had been hired in 1970 to found the California office. And he had graduated from uh, Harvard and Harvard Law School, but in between the London School of Economics. And he had figured out and started an office of economists and others around him 
that if we're going to complain about things, we should also shoulder the harder burden Mm -hmm. of proposing solutions to solve problems Mm -hmm. as well. So this, what I later called the third wave of environmentalism, Mm -hmm. the the first wave being setting aside land, uh, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, John Muir, founder of the Sierra Club. The second wave being stopping the worst abuses, banning DDT, happened in the 60s and early 70s. Uh, the very important laws that were passed that have been critical to the improvements we've made. And the third wave, uh, really started by Tom Graff and others at EDF before I arrived, you know, let's look at what do people need and how are the economic incentives destroying the environment and what are the changes that have to be made so we can get businesses harnessed, incentivized, So their natural pursuit of profits, which is part of the capitalist system, is diverted to pursuing solutions that will help the planet. This is hard work, but we do need fundamental change. And I just became convinced when I, after I'd been hired um, and met Tom Graff and and others at EDF, that it was the most powerful approach to change things, to align that profit motive with what the planet needs to survive. So does it call to mind a few questions? One is, is it must've been very difficult. I've read that you took heat from other places in working with places like McDonald's, which probably came later uh, than when you just started. So on the one hand, you're swimming upstream. On the other hand, if actually this is from a leadership perspective, was it difficult to make that shift on a, on a, maybe on a personal level, it was obvious, but maybe not. Did you know where it would lead? Maybe you'd, I'm sure a lot of people thought, well, they're going to get corrupted or something like that. Oh, yeah, there was uh, criticism for sure. But I think part of leadership is, you know, having a vision of what needs to be done and helping other people to see that it needs to be done and bringing them along. And the first task was taking the roots of the third wave that had been put together by Tom Graff and his colleagues in our San Francisco, California office and um, it's actually in Oakland, California, and galvanizing, you know, our staff and our board to see that this approach had the most power. It, the motivation wasn't that this would be nice to work with businesses. It, mm-hmm. The motivation was actually this was a way that we could have a bigger impact on solving bigger problems. And it turns out that although the external attacks, sometimes from others in the environmental community, were not at all fun or, or welcome. When McDonald's, for instance, announced that it was going to stop using the styrofoam clamshell and a series of other actually more important changes that resulted in them, you know, eliminating hundreds of millions, actually, of tons of waste from their waste stream using more recycled materials when the approach of economic incentives uh, was incorporated in the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 and uh, acid rain in the United States has been, you know, reduced by 90 percent, the environmental community, all of us that I know, really want change and results and know how urgent it is. And so when people saw this approach getting big results, whether it was voluntary action by companies or governments acting and 
those are the two elements of the third wave in both cases changing the incentives people uh, became more accepting of the approach and themselves advocates now we are hardly the only environmental group working with big businesses uh, we're one of many it's interesting to think of of you it's you're leading i mean the goal is to is to lower emissions and environmental change you're also influencing your community because of this maturation. I read it as a maturation of the field. Maybe when DDT was around, maybe the most important thing was to ban DDT. And maybe before we had national parks, if we didn't get the national parks protected, we might not have them anymore. And maybe at that time, maybe at Teddy Roosevelt, it might not have worked at that time to take an approach of working with McDonald's wasn't around, but you know, whatever the equivalent. So maybe people didn't see it until then. You're helping people in your community to see something that they weren't seeing before. I'm sure you were part of a team, part of not just in, within EDF. There must have been others doing. Or were you the, the a trailblazer there as well? I think EDF was the, not me alone, but EDF was the trailblazer in work partnering with companies. The example of EDF working with McDonald's really was the first example of one of the major environmental groups working with a big business. I think the first example. Uh, and the uh, using economic incentives in to achieve the result of clean air. Uh, there were others. Uh, Bill Drayton and, and others had proposed uh, carb, uh, sulfur tax, but EDF was the first really to take it out of the theoretical level for a major national problem. Uh, there were there were other examples, but it was the first major example. Did any of the criticism stick? Did did you also learn from them? Absolutely. And I do want to say, going back to the first and the second wave, those waves aren't, and we can't afford them to be over. There still are very special places that just need to be set aside and protected. Mm -hmm. There still are chemicals that just need to be banned. Mm -hmm. We still need regulation that has nothing to do with economic incentives to protect ourselves. They build on each other, and it's, it's the third wave doesn't discredit the first or the second. So that's the first thing I want to say. I was wondering how much of the feedback that you got from others yeah, so told you, oh, there's stuff we hadn't thought about here. Yeah, when we, one of the things that we quickly figured out is that understanding the perspective of others was important to make ideas stronger. So when people criticize the idea of having a cap on sulfur emissions that would decline over time radically, but letting the businesses figure out how best to meet that performance standard. Some environmental groups criticized the idea and and asked us questions about compliance and measurement and monitoring, and they helped us formulate incredibly strict regimes for compliance, measuring, and monitoring because their concerns were real and legitimate. And in that case, when we proposed the uh, Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 or or uh, we helped write a proposal for uh, the first President Bush to do that, George Herbert Walker Bush. It incorporated the idea of there would be trading between companies, but there'd be 24-hour real-time monitoring that had to be reported to the EPA. And if you lied on that monitoring for the first time ever in environmental law, it was a felony and you would go to jail. A felony for the person who lied? The person who lied... Yes, for the person, individuals at the company could be thrown in jail, yes. So these were really strict provisions, but the point is 
you learn by talking to others. And, and that's a bigger point, Josh, is that um, I had a professor in college. It's actually uh, a priest named Father John Dunn. He taught a course in comparative religion. And he was able to, in his book, The City of the Gods, and in his lectures, get us in the classroom to actually transcend and understand something about, maybe I'd like to think a lot about, what it was, what the perspective would be if you were a Buddhist, or you were Hindu, or you were Muslim, or you were Jewish, or you were Christian, or you were Catholic, or you were Lutheran, um, sex within Christianity. And that was an important course, not so much because I spent a lot of time thinking about comparative religion, but I, I learned that if we can get beyond demonizing companies that are creating the biggest problems, so I can understand why some people would want to demonize them, mm-hmm. but to actually understand their perspective, what drives the decision they make, understand their perspective about different solutions, then maybe we can come up with solutions that work for companies and the economy and creating more jobs, but also work for the natural world and human health and allowing people in nature to prosper together. It's not always that way. There's some businesses that you can't work with or their profit model, their business model just needs to be outlawed. Shouldn't be able to put lead in baby food or sell thalidomide or um, DDT. But in many cases, more cases than had been obvious, there were solutions. And that they probably would not have seen because from their perspective, EDF, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I see it is that EDF is going to see things from our perspective that McDonald's or Walmart isn't going to be able to. And it's not that McDonald's is opposed to it. They just would not have come up with it because of they have their perspective. EDF has its perspective. Yeah. Well, sometimes nowadays when the first meeting with an oil company executive, people think we're there to chain ourselves to their desk mm-hmm. and uh, they view environmental groups the same way many environmental groups view oil companies. Mm-hmm. And when you have that sort of understandably polarized thinking and, and the emotional content of it, it blocks the ability to have a robust conversation uh, where sometimes, not always, but sometimes you can find uh, middle ground. Now, I'm one, for instance, who believes that renewable energy, we need to be peddled with a metal and transition to uh, renewable energy and clean energy at zero emissions as quickly as possible. And uh, we want to drive that as fast as we can with the strongest possible laws and incentives. At the same time, we're willing to work with oil companies strikes many is, uh, may strike you is pretty odd. But it turns out that oil companies are pumping oil and natural gas, not only to be used as fuel, but also to be put in other products, including plastics, which the use of which single-use plastics and plastics with toxic materials also should be minimized and in some cases even outlawed. But their climate pollution is incredibly powerful as they do these things. So in the time until we make that transition, which needs to be urgently as soon as it can be, working to get them to reduce 
the amount of climate pollution, methane, a very potent greenhouse gas, as fast as possible, that's pretty important work. So it's possible to both be, in a sense, working to put that whole model out of business and move to completely clean energy, and at the same time, be working to make sure, well, as as long as they're in that business, we've got to minimize the damage and maximize the climate benefit from their activities. There are a lot of different directions that I want to go in here. The, the one that I've been pursuing a lot is that I think a lot of listeners, and myself included here, I think they're making changes that are facing resistance. A lot of people are, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of how fast people want to move, environmentally speaking, and how, how fast they're moving themselves. And people who are moving faster probably feel like they're swimming upstream. And so I wanted to get that human side of things of your doing that in your field on a bigger scale than most individuals who are listening to this. So I wanted people to hear what, and I want to hear what it's like swimming upstream and sustaining that for a long time. And then ultimately it sounds for a large part, you've, this tide has turned and now you're swimming. Well, in some areas you're probably swimming downstream. There's a lot of upstream left to go. You're also bringing up something that I I would have loved to have brought up and, and I'm glad that you did, which is the perspective of seeing the other's perspective, the emotions, the motivations that the people that you're working with face, not just that I don't think you're going to get if you just chain yourself to the desk and say what you're doing is wrong. They probably don't think that what they're doing is wrong. They might not be aware of something or they might be aware of something that that I'm not. And it sounds like that's something that came in. I'm curious if if it began that way before you started or is that something you developed in working with them as you sat with them in their offices as opposed to Uh, picketing outside in front? I think, uh, you know, just over time from Tom Graff and others, I I learned the the power of of listening. And uh, I had another college professor named Charlie Walker. He was an engineer. And he said, a lot of these problems, turns out, are technically solvable. Mm -hmm. But people have to get beyond just screaming at each other in order for them to be solved. And that just, that is actually the philosophy from the very first day I was in his class that got me on my way um, back to have dinner with my friends to to literally change course and go to the library, you know, at five o'clock and spend the next hour and a half doing the reading assignment for a class that wasn't, you know, was once a week seminar. So a week ahead of time, that that wasn't typical of my college years, but it's just such a so many people feel hopeless about these problems mm-hmm. and therefore don't engage. I think it's really important to understand what Charlie Walker told me, that these problems are technically solvable and there's reasons to be optimistic or at least to have hope. You know, Josh, uh, another professor, David Orr, who I did not have the pleasure of having in college, I met him after, long after I graduated, He explained to me that uh, there's a difference between optimism and hope. Optimism can be just a prediction. It's all going to be fine. Hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. And if we engage and we work at it, we can change the world. Yeah. So, Well, I I want to pause there and let that sink in. And I can't help but comment on, on how much you have these touchstones. You as an individual, you keep coming back to various teachers that you've had. Each time you mention a couple of them that you've mentioned, make me think about John Stuart Mill. Uh, of if you have an idea and you haven't challenged it, and you just think you're right, who knows? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Maybe you would like to be persuaded if, if only you knew. So partly, I want to go into 
your development as someone who leads others, someone who listens to others, someone who delivers, and how much of that comes from touchstones and how much of it are you changing all the time? I'm also curious, EDF is changing. I was just watching a video this morning of yours. I think it was the first one that came up when I go to your YouTube channel. It talks about the fourth wave. And I don't know if you know, my, my PhD is in astrophysics and I help build a satellite. And you guys are building a satellite. And I'm like, that's like, is that, what's the fourth wave? Well, the fourth it, wave is Am I all, jumping the gun too much? Or? No, no, the fourth wave, uh, I'm glad you brought it up. Building on the other three waves, not a rejection of them, but another a wave that builds on top of the other three is um, the world is changing really fast. Technologies, innovations are happening. Uh, we in the, uh, who care about uh, the future of humanity and the planet where we all live and the web of life, uh, we need to be harnessing these innovations and developing more innovations in order to solve problems. And for the first time in a long time, the fact that technological innovation is happening faster than ever gives me a sense that there's a strong wind, not in the faces of those of us trying to solve these problems, but wind at our back. Uh, and I say that because um, so many of these problems are invisible. Physically invisible. Physically invisible. You can't see how much climate pollution comes up from an oil and gas well. You can't see the methane, natural gas leaking in the streets in New York City. You don't know exactly how much air pollution is the air. You have a general sense that the air is clearer one day and less the next. But now, with the advent of technology, we have the ability and we are measuring uh, that air pollution in uh, West Oakland, California. We've developed the finest, highest resolution maps of city streets, inch by inch, foot by foot, of how much conventional air pollution that makes you sick, fine particulates, uh, nitrogen oxides, how much of that is on each street and how, depending on where you live on one city block, your exposures change. And then big data is another innovation, Kaiser Permanente, that ensures 30% of the people in California. Uh, they gave us access not to the data, but to a data scientist who queried the data and found out if you live in an area of more pollution, how does it, that affect your health? Mm -hmm. And they found out it does. You're more likely to have serious uh, cardiac event, cardio uh, respiratory problems if you live in the more polluted parts of the city. I don't think once that thing that was invisible, air pollution, becomes visible, I don't think people are going to stand for that. They're going to demand cleaner air in each and every city. We've now been given a grant by the city of London to build out a sensor network. Mm -hmm. uh, in London, you can go to a website, Breathe London, to learn more about it. So cities, once they see other cities are making this data available to citizens, more and more cities are going to deploy similar networks to make what had been invisible visible. And, you know, the same thing is true in a bigger way with a satellite you mentioned in the oil and gas industry. I love that the enthusiasm, so many people, when I talk to them about the environment, I'm sure you've seen this, it's like, well, I could do something, but the government has to do this or the big corporations have to do it. And if they don't do it, then I'm not going to, what I do doesn't matter. Well, you're working with, you're leading the government. I mean, usually you think of government as launching satellites. And I, I someone, I don't think it was you, was like, we're putting up our own damn satellite. 
And it's like, we're not going to wait for them. I, I think to wait for government, I don't think that's a, a strategy that's going to work. I think they are going to follow on this for a long time. I mean, maybe other governments in other countries are, are ahead of ours. And same with corporations. You're leading them. You're doing – let the record show that when he said roll up the sleeves, he rolled up his sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> the, the listeners couldn't hear that. You know, de Tocqueville wrote a book called Democracy in America. Mm-hmm. And he heard this uh, European came over to the United States um, a couple hundred years ago. And he was – not quite a couple hundred years ago, I guess. But he, he was just amazed that America had all these civic associations – NGOs, we now call them. Mm-hmm. And they were people not content to sit back and let government do it. They saw it as part of their mission to help government get things done. I think a lot of people did have that attitude. I think with the advent of President Trump and his horrendous campaign to destroy all the environmental protections that have been created in the last few decades, literally to destroy them and roll them back. Um, I think less people, Josh, today, as we sit here, feel like we can sit back and let the government solve these problems because it, it's so clearly not true in 2019. And not just that, and we can make a difference. And I mean, you are making a difference. You're putting up a satellite. That's not like a little thing. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting? that you're not alone, go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So now I have to bring up something that before I hit record, I was talking about Bob Langert and I talking about what motivated him. Your motivation is clear. It's strong. That's what I'm reading. It seems pretty clear. What does the environment mean to you? What motivates you? All, after all these years, I'm sure you've had fewer setbacks than advances, but I'm sure you've had plenty of setbacks. What does the environment mean to you? What, is it, what keeps you motivated? What's, what's at the heart of it, if, if there's something there? Well, to... I think we all have a responsibility, you know, to make the world a better place in our own ways. People do that, some by working in business, some by being teachers, some by being nurses, some by being good parents. To me, given what's going on now, the enormous threats which have become so large to the ability of future generations and even our own generation to live happily and healthy uh, and thrive in this world are in so much peril that I feel a responsibility. And over the last uh, year, I've been blessed with the birth of a granddaughter, um, Sydney Grace, and a grandson, Henry Walter. And I just feel it even more now than I ever have that since the problems are solvable, we've got a responsibility to solve them and not leave this world heading on its current path to catastrophe. I mean, the, the big thing that I heard was, was a couple of things, a, a sense of responsibility. It feels to me like you get, you derive a, a joy or not, maybe not a joy, but something positive from acting. And of course there was your family and uh, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Hello to Sydney and, and Henry, was it? Did I get Yes. Did, and did something change when you saw them? I'm, I'm, I, I don't have any kids, but my nieces and nephews, like something changed 
Well, it's a, it's a, uh, the birth of uh, any living, uh, living uh, soul is uh, a miracle in my book. And yeah, so both uh, witnessing uh, the birth of my kids and then being able to hold the, um, the newborn grandchildren, it's uh, life is an amazing thing. You walk in an old growth forest and it's hard not to, I don't know if there's anyone alive who could not feel a, a real spirituality and of the sanctity of, of all life and getting rid of the toxic substances, uh, the microplastics, the climate pollution that harms that, what could be more gratifying than to in my case, um, spend my time doing something that has so much meaning. And yes, when we uh, are able to get results, as we've done more often than not, although we've had our share of failures too, like the inability to pass a climate bill in 2010. But when we do get big results, uh, whether it's acid rain or getting the 13 biggest oil companies to pledge to reduce their climate pollution by 75%. And when they follow through and do it, um, that's very gratifying. The pledge itself, of course, as President Reagan said, trust, but verify. Mm -hmm. And that's what the satellite is all about. The satellite, which uh, we're just completing raising $65 million to be able to contract to have it built, will be able to look at 80% of all the oil and gas facilities worldwide repeatedly uh, each and every week. So the pledges that have been made are great, and we're going to make damn sure that they meet them. I'm, I want to go back to the picture of the old-growth forest. I, I've not been to an old-growth forest. Oh, um, you need to go. And increasingly, I find that this question that I ask of, people, of guests of what the environment means to them, I'm increasingly realizing that it's normally not, usually not a verbal, it's not, not coming from that part of the brain. It's more like an image or a feeling. And I, I wonder if that's something that when you come to work every day, is is that old growth forest? Are those two grandchildren what's motivating you? And I'm sure there are other things as well. Or are they always there? You know, I think uh, you know beliefs, values are are important, and I've tried to describe as best I can what motivates me. There's a question that I like to follow it up with, and and uh, I can edit this out if you want. But I invite a, each guest at their option to, based on what the environment means to them to do something that they haven't already done. And if they're up for it, then to share what the experience was like. But I, I put a couple things in, some constraints. It doesn't have to fix all the world's problems all by yourself overnight. So it, the magnitude isn't the thing. And it's, it's not telling others what to do. There's enough people doing that. But it has to have a physically measurable result. So awareness is, I, I'm a fan of awareness and education, but it has to have a physically measurable result and something you're not already doing. And, and then to share what it's like after doing it if you're up for a second conversation, does anything come to mind of something that you're not already doing that you could do? And not the goal is not to fix everything. You know, it's just to maybe it's something old growth or something with the, with the grandchildren or something. And a lot of people, when they think about it at first, like, I'm not really sure. And then at some point they're like, Oh, you know, I've been meaning to do this thing for a while. Uh, uh, and I want to, you know, it's for the listeners to hear that. I think I hope to get a lot of people listening to this podcast feeling like, their motivation is different. Something in their heart is different than what's in your heart. But something's in their heart. And I think they'll enjoy acting on it. Yeah. Nothing comes to mind immediately, but I'll continue to give that some thought. Um, 
Do you mind if I, if I uh, persist a bit to see if anything, because almost everyone comes up with something that was already there and almost everyone has protections. I think, I think people feel vulnerable when they share something they care about, something they're going to do that they could be, that people could hear about. And, but I think a lot of people feel like, well, if I'm not doing enough, it's not worth doing. Whereas I think it's more when people do what they care about, then it's rewarding. And it almost inevitably leads to more, but it, the goal is not to be perfect. It's to be, yeah, to do one's best, to, to live by, usually it takes a little going back and forth. Yeah. And in some cases it's more challenging for people who've done more already because they're yeah. like, oh, the low hanging fruit's already gone or already eaten. Yeah. I would really need to give it more thought. Okay. Uh, I don't want to push, uh, but if something does come to mind, well, there's like layers of like reaching each other. Uh, but uh, I'd love to hear if something comes to mind because I'd love to bring it to the listeners and have, you know, different people have different things. Actually, Bob, he also was, wasn't really sure. Bob Langer from McDonald's yeah, who yeah, brought us together. He also wasn't really sure. And then like, next thing you know, he writes me and it's like this program. Oh, I maybe shouldn't say it, but uh, well, I'll say it and hopefully not have to apologize. But uh, there was an event going on near where he lives and they were, it was not a zero waste thing. Like people just weren't caring. And he, he went in and just spoke to them. And I was like, did you think about, I think it was bags or what they were, you know, they were just wastefully doing things, not really thinking about it. And he got them to think about it. And he was like, he wouldn't have done it otherwise. It wasn't a big deal, but it led to doing more. And I think he enjoyed sharing it with me. Like I certainly enjoyed reading it because here's my prejudices coming out. When someone from McDonald's says, I'll get to something environmental later, I'm like, "Mm, trust but verify. (laughs) And then he did. You know, it was like, I was very pleasantly surprised. I read, if I'm not mistaken, reading between the lines of, of the email, he was glad to share. And I want, you know, I hope that people at home feel like, I feel like a lot of people are held back by this feeling. If I'm not doing enough, it's not worth doing. You know, these, these little things are so small. Why bother? These big things are so big. It's too much work. All right. Well, I'll take that on as a challenge. All right. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. And yeah. uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. So I, I'd like to wrap up with a couple questions. One is, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? I mean, there's so many, th- actually, there's a lot of things I wanted to follow up on. Yeah. And if you had seven hours, I'd keep going. Well, one thing I suppose would be that, you know, EDF is doing its best in a lot of different ways to develop environmental leaders, both on our staff through um, various programs of staff development we have, but also we have a program called Climate Corps where we've had um, a thousand students from business and other graduate schools do internships in companies to make them more sustainable and they come together each summer. Uh, it's done on a summer when they're in these graduate schools, mostly business schools. And they go through a boot camp to find out the experiences of other interns. And this, these thousand kids over time have not only um, saved the company's $1.6 billion in savings, but they've also reduced you know, millions of tons of climate pollution that otherwise would go into the air, water pollution. And they've developed a leadership cadre, a network, an alumni network amongst themselves. And um, I think it's a great program. We call it Climate Corps. So is it vaguely like AmeriCorps or uh, Teach for America? Because it's it's only a summer internship, but it's a summer internship that for many of them changes their lives, a healthy percentage end up working in 
the corporate sector in sustainability jobs, uh, some of them PayPal, Amazon, McDonald's, to give you examples of where some of the alumni have ended up. So we need more people like this working in big companies who bring that drive and that commitment and that creativity to actually, with an entrepreneurial zeal, pursue solutions for these problems. So that's one thing. This fits in with an, uh, one of the ongoing messages of this podcast is that a lot of people feel like, you know, with leadership in the title of the podcast, I get a lot of people who write in and they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm about leadership. And they keep thinking following the path that everyone else has followed is the path to leadership. And I think what you're offering here is a path that's actually probably in this day and age with the demand for environmental leadership. I think doing this internship is probably going to be a better, more effective path for them to become leaders and effective leaders and connect with lots of other people who are like that. Then, I don't know, start as, you know, an associate and work their way up through the ladder because they're going to face some challenges here that are the, the challenges that have to be solved. And they're going to solve them in the summer and probably bring them out to wherever they work, maybe get a job at the place that they worked in that summer. We have, uh, I think people are increasingly realizing this is a great path to changing the world in the business community. We have 10 applicants for every space we have for this summer program. Even though we hire, you know, 120 folks like this every summer, we have more than 1,000 applications. But it, it is a great program. So I did want to bring, on the subject of leadership, I wanted to bring that to your attention. The other thing, Josh, uh, you might ask about is is political change in voting because we're in a moment that's unlike any other. For the first time now, a whole series of public opinion polls are showing that climate change is a top issue on the minds of people casting their votes. Millennials are not only demanding that the companies that they work for are run with these environmental values in mind, taking jobs at companies with lower pay, where companies are walking the walk as opposed to higher paid companies that aren't, but they're increasingly demanding that their elected officials uh, don't only talk the talk, but actually support the tough policies that we need that will speed the transition to a new uh, low carbon economy. And I think reasons to engage and reasons to be optimistic and reasons to vote and reasons to be optimistic and engage in, in our nation's political process, which you know, can be revolting at times. A big reason to engage is we're in a moment where things are changing now. And and like with marriage equality, they could change in a hurry if people continue to increase their demands on our elected officials to help speed the change in ways that uh, in some cases only government can. I don't think we solve the climate change problem, for example, without strong programs by Congress that reduce climate pollution and speed the clean energy jobs that need to be created. I have to share something here. I I just went to see a candidate speak, and I'm not going to say which one yet, but it spoke to me. And and there's a campaign manager standing right behind me. So when the speech ended, I went and said, I spoke to, and they're like, we like what you're saying. Talk to our strategy people. I was like, I can make a difference. We can all make differences. And and taking, not Long before the vote, you know, speaking to these people and, and uh, hopefully I'll have some influence on strategy. The last question I ask is, is if, and you might have actually just answered this, but do you have anything personal from yourself to the listeners to share? And you might have just said it. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, I do think uh, all of us think about 
how to spend our time and what to do uh, with our lives, I, I would just say for me, I can't think of anything more joyful than um, spending my time in a, in a way that has deep meaning and purpose. And I just would ask our listeners to think about what's important to them, why they're listening to this podcast, why they care about the environment, and you know, the question you challenged me with, what else they can do to be part of making change in this world that is so urgently needed. Joy, meaning, purpose, why? I, I can't think of a better way to end. Fred Krupp, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. First, apply to work with EDF, especially if you're young and want to get that internship. Organize, vote, and lead politicians, corporate executives, and others with authority to act environmentally. I want to share why I consider EDF's approach valuable. Many of us are outraged. Our emotions become intense. In many of us, that emotional intensity drives us to do what we want most, which doesn't necessarily lead to what's effective. I criticize the lack of leadership around the environment because people overwhelmingly spread facts, figures, doom, gloom. They tell people what to do. And in no area that I know of do effective leaders say, here's how to lead. Spread facts, figures, doom, gloom, and tell people what to do. As I see it, people are venting more than leading. They're saying what they feel like they want to say, which is not necessarily what will lead others effectively. Effective leadership works when it's based on the views and motivations of the person you're leading. For many, that's uncomfortable, especially if you feel the people you're leading are doing disgusting things, like burning fossil fuels unnecessarily, choking the ocean with plastic, things like that. But that's what works. Fred and EDF's sober, thoughtful approach of working with big business is accessing the biggest potential change and leading them. That said, on my way that day to EDF's office, I picked up several pieces of McDonald's litter off the ground. I thought about bringing it to the office to share, you know, despite your work with them, McDonald's is still producing a lot of garbage. I didn't feel that was the best thing to do, so I just threw it away. We all need to keep working on this, not just relying on others' approaches. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.